joining us in the middle of a uh, series called Deconstruct. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews, and we've been calling it Deconstruct because, I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in the faith. I grew up in church. I grew up going to church, and basically what I was taught in church was more what to do when you're a Christian, right? Like, do these things, don't do these things. Here's what you can say. Here's what you can't say. Here's some new expectations. Here's a kind of a new moral code to live by what it is to be a Christian. But the book of Hebrews and what many people are doing today is asking the question, why? Why Christianity? Why would I even consider Christianity? And that's what this book does, because Hebrews is ultimately not a book of theology or a book of prophecy. It's a book of philosophy. It helps us to understand the why behind we should even consider the claims of Jesus. This book was written, it's called Hebrews, because it was written to a Hebrew audience, people that were, were had a background with God, an understanding of the Hebrew scriptures and the God of the Bible. They were even familiar with the idea of a, a Messiah coming. They were looking for a Messiah, and this claim that Jesus was the Messiah is what this book of Hebrews takes them on this philosophical journey. And there's been two main tenets that we've been looking at over uh, this journey that we've been on together. And it's this idea first that Jesus is different, right? He is more indifferent than any way that God has communicated in the past, but he is also complete. Jesus is the complete fulfillment of every prophecy that was communicated uh, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And so today, chapter 10, I like to call the crescendo of this book. I don't know about you, I grew up a little bit of music. I took piano when I was a kid. I learned to play enough to do like Star Wars with one finger, and then that's about it. But I, I remember why crescendo means like you build, you because it was fun as a kid. If, it, if you saw that, it means you get to hit the piano harder and, and play harder. But I love the idea, a song that crescendos and builds, and you can feel it. You kind of know it's coming, and when it hits, you're just like it all comes together. And this is what chapter 10 is. This is the crescendo of this book. It's this big idea shift of this really deep philosophical shift that we're saying, you know, this is, there's a unique, unique character. His name is Jesus. Uh, we get to live with the idea of, of continuing to grow in our life and have hope in our life. We get to consider things that we've never been willing to believe before and maybe open our minds to new things. And we've been realizing now that God has been tearing down walls that we built between ourselves and him. We talked about that last week. And today, what we're going to do in chapter 10 is to talk about, we're presenting this idea to us that, that the religion, what we talk about is religion of works is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about religion today. Instead, we're talking about this relationship that we get to have with our Creator. And today we're titling our message, Losing Your Religion. And you might think, well, that's a crazy title for Easter Sunday, right? <laughs> I thought we were, that's when everybody comes to church. But what we're going to see today is that we're going to, writers of Hebrew 10 are going to help us lose this idea of be, just being religious. Now, when you hear the term religion, there's probably as many different opinions and understandings of that as there are people in this room. Our view of religion and God uh, can be, you know, shaped by our upbringing, our backgrounds, our cultural and historical representations of it, and our own personal experiences. And for many of us, we view religion and God as something to be understood, a concept to be explored, or a picture to reveal. But this is not how God desires us to experience him at a distance or just as an object 
or an idea. We have a, we have a TV in our living room. It's called, it's the name of it's the frame. And on the frame, it, you can actually download incredible masterpiece works of art to show on your TV. And the way the TV, it looks like it. Like there's times I want to go, I go touch it because it feels like the, the patterns there. We have literally the whole entire works of Van Gogh downloaded on our TV. But you know what I don't actually own? A Van Gogh. Like it's not in my house. As much as I can put it up there, I do not have the real thing in my house. And what religion does is often keeps God as just an image or an idea versus something we can actually connect and, and commune with. And this is what chapter 10 breaks down. This idea that we're going to look at is moving God from something we admire to someone we can experience life with. And so let's start in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. They, they lay the groundwork here, and it helps us understand how what, this, what religion does to us. First thing it says is this. For since the law, or religion, has, is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The first thing we see here, it says the law has but a shadow. And what I want you to see is re religion or religious ideology is a shadow of God. Now, when you think about a shadow, what is a shadow? It's, it's a representation, right? The sun's out. You see your shadow. It looks like you. It's an outline of you. You can see it, but you don't. You see the form, but not all the details, not the real thing. And one of the most damaging results of many of our religious ideologies is that instead of teaching people how to get to know the person of God, they have taught people just how to understand the idea of God. We often teach about what God is. We define him by a set of beliefs, characteristics, and actions. And, and here are some ideas that just show up in our verb, verbiage sometimes and even how we live. Like what we'll say is God is love. So that, that's something I'm observing about God. But when I know God, I say, God loves me. I'm ex it's experiential at that point. God is gracious versus God forgives me. God is holy. I can observe that. But God teaches me. God is omnipotent versus God protects me. God is merciful versus God understands me. God is the creator versus God knows me intimately. See, those are all great things to know about God, things I can look at and observe. But the other things that he loves me, forgives me, teaches me, protects me, understands me, and knows me intimately are things that I experience in a relationship. And so the, the thing I want us to see is that we all, what well, we all do is we, we, when we make God an image just to be worshipped or an idea to be followed, it has very little impact on our life. And we, we must start to embrace the idea that God is not simply a picture or something to stare at, but he is something to be experienced, something to be ingrained into our life, something to be set and do life together with. Katie and I were watching TV the other day. I can't remember what show it was. I, we've been watching This Is Us uh, a lot, catching up on it, and I can only watch one episode because I cry too much every episode but like uh i forget the guy's name who's like the manny you know if you watch a show it's a good looking guy he had his shirt off and i was like you know is that is that the idea of man like do you is that what i need to work to look out like and she's like well it's not bad but she said i actually just enjoy <laughs> sitting on the couch with you having a glass of wine as well it's like all right good like i'm glad i don't have to do that we can just 
hang out together. And so many of us create this idea and image of God that is like, you know, almost untouchable. And we could say, I can never hang out. I can never do that. But God literally, what I want us to see and what they're saying here is ultimately God is the one who wants to commune with you, wants to hang out with you, wants to share a glass of wine with you on the couch and enjoy life together. And so uh, we, we see in here that this religious ideology not only is a shadow, but that we see in part two, it says that in verse, uh, second part of verse one there, it says it can never, even though we offer certain sacrifices every year, it can never make us perfect. And the religious ideology then leaves us wanting more. It leaves us wanting more. And that's what this church first talked about, just trying to do the same thing year after year, day after day, to make me closer to God. Thinking, growing in relationship with God, this is what it ends up thinking. We start thinking that it means just being more devout, more committed, more sacrificial, and that does not equate to intimacy. And here's what actually it creates in our life. When we start thinking this way, that it's just about me doing more, or there's an image of God, I've got to just keep him as an idea or this, this thing to, to be worshipped from afar, it creates this first in us an idea of obligation. We have to, we start thinking that following God and being with God is something we have to do versus something we get to do. And there's beauty in that, right? That we get to do this. When we start thinking we have to do it, we start believing this, that we stop believing that his commands are for our good. We think that they're a hurdle for us to get over, to keep us from moving forward. We think his laws are there to hold us back instead of actually tools to help us move forward. And when we view life as being with God as an obligation, we grow weary, right? We grow weary in following. But there's a second danger in this that it talks about is not just an obligation, but when we feel like we have to keep coming back over and over and over again, it creates a sense of guilt in our life. We're constantly looking at the bad that we've done or the good that we didn't do. And instead of dealing with it, we try to cover it up. And we keep God at a distance because if we let him too close, he'll see our cracks and imperfections. And we end up treating people the same way as we, as we think God treats us with guilt. We start holding guilt and we start manipulating others and coercing them instead of embracing who we really are. And this just creates worry in our life. Obligation makes us feel weary and guilt makes us worry in our life. And this is not what God wants for us. This is not the story of Easter. This was not why Jesus came and lived a beautiful model life, why he died on a cross and rose again so that we can feel an obligation to follow God and grow weary in doing that and still be guilt-ridden and just worry about what's coming next. So why do we fall into this trap? Why do we sin? Why do we still sometimes even those that maybe have been pursuing God for a long time fall into this trap. I think it comes down to one major issue, and it's we hold on to doubt in our life. We still hold on to doubt. What do we doubt? We doubt that God can be known and that God wants to know us. We doubt that his commands, even though they may be difficult to follow, will actually bring good into our lives. We doubt that he wants good for me and instead is just out to highlight my deficiencies and shortcomings. These doubts drive how we act and how we think God acts and what it means to follow him. And these doubts can lead us to a few places in our life. And first of all, it means this. Doubt usually means we elevate fear over faith. Fear becomes our norm instead of living in faith. We start thinking, God can never forgive me. My sin's too great. My brokenness is too deep. 
My trials are too heavy for him. He'll punish me if I fail. God's not knowable. He's not approachable. And we start to live in this fear. If God really sees me for who I am, boy, am I in trouble. Instead of faith that allows us to be who we are and allow God to come in and deal and grow us. But then we also, when we live in doubt, we start to live by comparison instead of compassion. We start thinking, I'm not good enough. I, I can't do enough good. Or we start looking at somebody else and we like, well, as long as I'm not as bad as that person, as long as they're a little worse than me, I'm okay. And we stop giving, getting grace from God and we stop giving grace to other people and we are constantly judging and making judgment calls that we are never intended to make. Have you ever found yourself here living in fear, constantly judging yourself and others by a standard that no one can meet? Are you running from God because you are scared, thinking if he sees you, he'll punish you? Running from others because you feel that they, you'll need more grace than, than they have or they need more grace than you can give them? This is the exact opposite of what it means to connect with God. And this is the crescendo of the book of Hebrews right here to push back on this idea. Just out of this first verse, it is pushing back hard on this idea that we do not have to live with these doubts. We don't have to live with fear. We can live in faith. We, don't, we can show grace. We don't have to compare ourselves to everybody. And so the last part of this chapter, in verses 19 through 25, we're going to see how to live abundantly. To live not as an ideology. God is an idea, this picture frame on a wall, but actually where we start to have intimacy with God. And so Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, we're going to read it and then we'll look at some of the verses and see what, see what it teaches us. Verse 19 says this, says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, and we talked about that last week, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us then draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the days drawing near. Now, look at these words in this passage. Confidence, opened, draw near, assurance, faith, clean, pure, hope, without wavering. These are words not of distance, but of invitation. Not to get to know about God, but to get to know him personally. To embrace the person of God, not just the persona of him, and it brings us to this new way of thinking of you and I can have intimacy with God. We can know our creator. And there's two, two words here, or two phrases that he puts together that says, I think that are the key to unlocking the door to intimacy. And the first it says to approach with a true heart. A true heart. Now, when I, when I hear those two words together, that sounds amazing. Like, I I love it when I feel like I really get to know somebody. I know their heart. I know what, what makes their heart beat, what gets them excited. Uh, I, I love it like with my kids or my wife when I know them so well, like I can get them a gift and it's like the perfect gift. Like it is just it. I love it when somebody knows me that way. I'm naturally like a planner. I love to plan things and do things. I love to, to make sure everything's taken care of. But like one of the best gifts people can give to me is like a day that they have planned for me. 
like that they have put it together. Now, they got to know what I like. Like they can't take me to a restaurant and I'm like, don't take me, you know, to the Olive Garden on Times Square. That would be a bad, that'd be a bad planning day. But when they know me well enough to plan a beautiful day for me, right? And so that, that's idea of this true heart of being honest and open. And God wants you to come to him as yourself, not in a disguise, not behind a mask, but with your true heart and your true self on display. Now, that may be scary for some of you, right? It may, may be as scary as posting a, an unedited selfie on Instagram, right? Without a filter, like without, without a beautiful background, uh, without the, the blemishes washed away, uh, without the bad posture. You know, we, we take pictures and we take 18 pictures of one pose to find the very best one, and then we have to edit it to even make it look better to then post it, right? And this is not your true self. And this is also not your true heart. Coming to God with a true heart is coming with no filters. It's blemished. It's okay. He knows. He sees. He understands. God doesn't want you to approach him with a filter on. No, approach him with a true heart in the confidence that you are invited into his presence. You're welcome there. And you belong there. You belong in his presence. A few years ago, a friend Jamal, who comes here and he comes to our Fight Eye campus as well, uh, he I helped him do a film and and uh, he a film he submitted got admitted uh, submitted and accepted to the Cannes Film Festival over in France, and so he invited me to go with him. And we showed up over there like we knew what we were doing, right? Neither of us had ever been there. We'd never been to a film festival of this magnitude in our life. We packed a tux just in case, like we got invited somewhere. We had no clue. We got our badges. We checked in that day. We got our badges, and we were like, I have no clue what this gets us into and what it doesn't get us into. And that, that whole week, we were just like testing the waters. I remember that the one night we were out, and there's this huge hotel over there called the Carlton, a world-famous hotel where like stars hang out. And he's like, I wonder how you get in there. And I'm like, Jamal, I, I don't know, but he's like, let's, let's give it a try. And so I was like, let's just walk up there to the front doors. Like, we know what we're doing. We know where we're going. So we did. We walked up. There's three of us. We walked in. I waved, and they opened the doors, and we walked right in. And I'm like, we got inside, and I was like, I don't know what to do now. Like, I don't know where we're. I was like, I saw the bathrooms. I was like, let's go regroup in the bathrooms. <laughs> and so we head to the bathrooms and we're standing there and there's Sean Penn standing at the urinal beside us. And I'm like, okay, maybe we can regroup somewhere else. <laughs> and uh, we ended up like, okay, we just have to feel comfortable and relaxed and connected. And like, this is not what it's like coming into God's presence where you feel like, okay, I, I snuck in. I just got in by mistake somehow. No, it's, it's when you come to your favorite restaurant and you know the owner, and you know all the waiters, they call you by name, they know what you like to eat. That's a true heart. That's coming in being known and that's what intimacy is. And it leads to this second phrase here, which you and I can approach God not only with a true heart, but an assurance of faith, it says. That our hearts are, are clean and our evil conscience has been clean and washed pure. This is a willingness to overcome your doubts your perceptions, your personal biases about God that have been crafted in our own life and our own experiences and actually believing with full assurance that he does love us. He does want a relationship with us. God desires to have you with him. And it says here that not only are we with him, but when we're with him, he cleanses us. He restores us. Those parts of us that we wish didn't show up without a filter washing them away, he deals with. 
He brings beautiful restoration into our life. Growing up, my grandparents, uh, we called them Nanny and Papa, uh, one of the things they did, they loved going to garage sales. They lived in, outside of Atlanta, and I would get in the back of a van with them, and they would go and find these old, broken, what looked like to me, pieces of junk furniture. I mean, pieces that I'm like, this looks horrible. I don't know why you spent $10 on this, but they knew, they could look at it and see that there was some value there. They'd take it, put it in the back of their van. We would get going back home to, to, their apart, uh, to their house. And in the back of their house, they had a shed. And in the shed, they had all these tools that they would take this piece of furniture, strip off the old paint, sand it down. I would watch them do it. And over the course of weeks, they would turn this $10 piece of junk into this beautiful, restored piece of furniture that people would pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for. The beautiful act of restoration. They could see beauty when nobody else could. And this is exactly what I want you to see of how God views you. This assurance of faith that when God looks at you, he sees beauty. He's been with us. He will be with you. He is ready. He has worked. We, we looked through all the different old covenants a few weeks ago of how God has continually revealed himself to us. God has shown his character to be true, that he wants to be with us. So how do we experience this kind of intimacy, this type of being known and accepted at that pure and honest level? Verses 23 through 25 are the ones that tell us how to do that. First, it says in verse 23, excuse me, to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So the first thing to do is hold fast to the hope of Christ. If you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear this. There is hope for you. There is hope for your internal fears that are overwhelming you. There is hope for your failures and flaws that seem to always trip you up. There is hope for your failing relationships that seem to constantly be falling apart. There is hope for your desperate situation to which you can't see any way forward. This verse reminds us to hold fast to hope. Hope in Christ isn't always a pathway out of pain. Too often we think, well, if I pray about this, I prayed and I'm still dealing with it. Didn't go away. I want you to hear this. Hope in Christ is not a pathway out of the pain. More often than not, it is a companion and a comfort through our pain. Through it. It's not being left alone. He has promised to be faithful. And this hope is not based on our faithfulness, but it says it's based on his. And all we have to do is hold on, hold tight, and be close in intimacy. But then it says also in verse 24 that we should stir one another up to love and good works. I don't know about you. Do you have anybody in your life that maybe not to love and good works, but just kind of stirs things up when they get into your life, right? You know, we all kind of have those people. You're like, if you're out, uh, you know, you're in the neighborhood, you're hanging out, and like this person shows up, you're like, okay, things are going to get a little excited, you know, here going. And this is kind of what this means. Like when we are in each other's lives as followers of Christ together, and we see someone struggling, like they've turned back from the intimacy with God and have just kind of made God this distant idea, say, no, hold on, hold on. Let's stir up those good works again. Remember what God has done for you. Remember how you've engaged with him before. Remember the intimacy that you've had. This idea of stirring up love and good works is not just saying, go out and do some good things. It's stirring up the memories of it. It's like a, this snow globe, right? You, you shake a snow globe and, and the things that were already in there start to come up and it snows in and you see it and you remember it. And then if you forget it, you'd shake it again. And sometimes we need to shake up each other and remind each other to stir up the love and good works that we've had in our lives. 
And finally, it says that we should do this by continuing to meet together for encouragement. The final way we embrace intimacy is to do it together, to share about the way that our lives are being impacted and our relationship with God is growing more and more intimate. Share your triumphs and your trials, our victories and our defeats, joining together to meet and remember. And as much as that can be done in a room like this for an hour, hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning, it is much more effective to be done in one-on-one relationships, in small groups, in times that we gather together. So my encouragement with you this morning is, is with this part of finding it together is find someone. If you're here this morning and you're like, it's my first time here, I don't know anybody else in this room, don't leave without finding somebody else to maybe just say, hey, let's meet together beyond this. Let's connect. Let's take another step. Or I'll be back next week. Let's connect from there. So that's all this idea of setting God aside as this idea just to be studied and looked at and viewed versus someone to have intimacy and connection with brings us to our what we call our Jesus philosophy that we've been coming up with every week as we've been going through Hebrews. And it's simply this today, that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a reflection of the intimacy that we can all experience with God, our creator. Think about his life. Jesus modeled the consistency of intimacy in his life. He kept always saying, I and the Father are one. He would pray to the Father. He would say, give me God. He would go and spend time with the Father. He showed us, he modeled in his life what intimacy with the Father looked at. But even in his death, when he walked through the darkest moment of his life, he remained deeply connected to the Father. Into your hands I commend my spirit, he said as he passed. Even in that moment of of great pain, he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. He he allowed grace to continue to flow through him. And then we see in his resurrection this beautiful image of triumph and winning and coming back from the grave. And you know what he did at that moment? He didn't show up and just blast everybody and be like, I told you so. Look what you did to me. Now now you're going to pay, right? No, he didn't show up in that kind of triumph. He showed up in triumph to bring joy to people, to bring grace and to share his triumph with others. He modeled this. He didn't win alone. He invited others into the victory. Which brings me to my question of the day and one that I will continue to struggle with this, this week is this. What ideas do I have about God that are actually keeping me from having intimacy with God? Sometimes we can have these ideas of, well, God, God loves other people, but he doesn't love me. Or God, God is willing to forgive other people, but he's not willing to forgive me. Our God's too distant, God's too perfect, and I'm too broke. What idea about God is keeping you from actually stepping into a chance for intimacy with him? Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me as we come to our just time to close and reflect on this teaching this morning and on Easter and all that it means? It's easy on a Sunday like this, especially with the idea of Easter hanging right in front of us and the remembrance of the resurrection to to say, well, this is just the day I come to church, but there's a moment I don't want you to miss today that God, wherever you're at on your journey, is inviting you into intimacy. And that intimacy comes through Christ. Through the ability that this beautiful life, death, and resurrection of Christ, that he pulls us in. There's power in that. There's beauty in that. There's availability to God through that. No one in this room, no one in this world is too far, too disconnected to step into intimacy with your Creator. 
wherever you are right now, however distant you feel, however deep you think the chasm is between you and God, it can be gone in an instant through the work of Christ. Through the invitation to say, I am willing to learn, willing to understand what that means, willing to possibly step forward in faith. God, today as we just have this chance, these moments to hear from you, to allow your word to teach us, allow these writings to impact our life, allow this these thoughts to penetrate our hearts and change how we feel, maybe about ourselves or about you. God, help us to lose this religious mindset today and instead brace you not as an idea, but as a, a friend of intimacy, with intimacy. Somebody that we can know and that can know us. And we can experience the life-changing power of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus.